Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the final pop apocalypse of 2023. Now, I don't usually plug stuff, uh, much less at the top of the show, but in this case, I have to. Um, if you missed the live event, please be sure to catch a recording of the unbelievable Peripheries launch uh, event that happened just uh, last week. Uh, it started with Sam Weinberg, uh, alto saxophonist, who absolutely blew everyone away with this dizzying and gripping solo. Uh, it was it was really special. And then uh, after after some words, the poets Alice Oswald, Victoria Chang, and Joey Graham each gave superlative readings that were quite different but meshed together beautifully. And so be sure if you can to go and and watch that recording. And if you are in Cambridge or are in the area, be sure to pick up a copy of Peripheries, uh, edition six. Shira Bloor, Emma Delisle, and countless others are doing something really special with that journal. And I, and I hope that uh, everyone who can gets one in their hands. All right, now for something completely different, i.e. the show. Today's guest is Jeffrey Kripal, the J. Newton Razor Chair of Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. Jeff, or Jeffrey, is the author of 10 monographs, a couple duographs, meaning he co-wrote it with someone, has edited dozens of volumes, and has written more articles than I'm capable of counting. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure he wrote another one in the time it took me to detail all the things he'd already written. Uh, he's unbelievably prodigious. Um, and given that he's been doing this for around 30 years, any capsulation of his work is going to be partial. But for the sake of this show and uh, the interview that follows, <clears throat> we can speak to how much of his work orbits around what eventually became the title of this episode, which is Ecstatic Knowledge and the Study of Religion. By ecstatic knowledge, I intend, um, how do I put it, the sort of knowledge, we might call it noesis, nana, gnosis, that correlate to altered states of consciousness and embodiment. The study of this knowledge ebbs and flows in popularity within religious studies. But for the last three decades, Jeff has made ecstatic knowledge a centerpiece of his considerably growing oeuvre. So to contextualize our interview, I want to mention three main ways this concern has formed his work. The first being ecstatic knowledge within the traditions. Uh, we might call this comparative mysticism, particularly uh, as it deals with representatives from what are understood to be world religious traditions, uh, for those who use that term. So Kripal's early work focused entirely on recognizable and well-known religious geniuses, most notably the Bengali saint Ramakrishna, but also Catholic mystics of the Middle Ages, like Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, Kripal has also authored a very widely used textbook uh, entitled Comparing Religions that recognizes ecstatic states as fundamental to the history of religions uh, across world traditions, indigenous traditions, on into the present. Put all too simply, claims of altered states of knowledge, or we might say revelation, are there in the founding of religions, sects, or splinter groups. They're there with the appearance of new scriptures, ways of cultivating these states are formalized into practices, and we can go on and on. It's impossible 
to look at the history of religions and not notice, wow, these are quite important to what's happening here. Now, one way of analyzing these is to see them, these revelatory claims, as just claims to knowledge that can be studied sociologically, psychologically, and through other critical lenses. Uh, Kripal recognizes and does exactly that sort of work, particularly in his first two monographs, but not only there. But he's very suspicious of saying such claims are nothing but the social impacts or the uh, political uh, infighting that, that results from it. Now, the latter part of that claim makes certain scholars bristle their fur a little bit. Um, but what, as I read Jeff to argue, where such readings become incomplete is when we take into account how such ecstatic states impact those that we can see and talk to. Uh, we can analyze living subjects critically in the exact same way we can critically analyze Ramakrishna or Bernard of Clairvaux, but we can also see the ways in which that knowledge transforms them and ripples out into the world, which brings me to point two um, within Jeff's oeuvre, namely ecstatic knowledge beyond the traditions. Here I'm speaking of his work on the spiritual but not religious, paranormal, etc. So with his Esalen book, and that was 2007, I believe, and then the histories of the paranormal, like Authors of the Impossible 2010 and Mutants and Mystics 2012. My gosh, Jeff, slow down. Uh, Kripal turned to the study of those who would not be indexed as religious, at least traditionally speaking. What he noted is that when you put the experiences of contemporaries on the table with traditional mystics, you see all sorts of patterns emerge. Uh, there are clear and obvious differences, of course, based on social circumstances, gender, race, economics, and much else. This is very straightforward. But there are also claims of the soul or whatever that's contextualized as leaving the body and entering outer space, or someone going into trance and speaking with a non-human agent, or the psychic revelation of a text. We can go on and on here. Now, if we take contemporary accounts seriously, which is not to say literally, then we need to accept that such things very likely could have happened in the past and cannot be brushed off as only an epiphenomenon of social or political relations. Third and last, Kripal is not shy about turning this critical eye on himself and the discipline of religious studies as a whole. So how do we work with the ecstatic states and knowledge of the scholars of religion themselves, not just who they study, but their own ecstatic experiences and how this influences their work? This question goes back, Frank, all the way to the preface to Jeff's dissertation, which eventually uh, became Kali's child. But it is put, it is the main course of his second, and for many of us, his best book, Roads of Excess, Palaces of Wisdom, which studies the interweave between the lives of scholars and the historical mystics that they devote their lives to researching. And here he's looking at people like Louise Messon-Young and uh, Elliot Wolfson, among others. Jeff's most recent book, published, The Superhumanities, also builds on this foundation and explores it um, further, although here moving beyond scholars of religion into scholarship of the humanities as a whole, from, you know, Foucault and Nietzsche to Harold Bloom and many, many others. Now, here, as with most things, Kripal does not offer a simple answer to that question. 
uh, he uses a sort of two hands or both hand. So on the one hand, good scholarship requires that we be mindful of how our own personal ecstatic knowledge can shape and also distort our inquiry. Uh, we have to also critically analyze our own position as scholars, and that goes deep. Uh, it can be psychological, it can be sociological, it can be, you know, sociology of knowledge. There's there's many different layers to that. But on the other hand, it is really difficult to find someone who devotes their entire lives to studying this sort of weird and ecstatic material uh, for a living that has not known such states. Uh, so. Of course, um, it is impossible for us to say uh, the experience of one person, some scholar in the 21st century, is the same as a historical mystic or even somebody, you know, from a different language game, you know, thousands of miles away, of course. Uh, but in the same way that it's easier to understand someone describing their trip to see the Northern Lights, if you too have made the trip up north to go see the Northern Lights, even if it's from a different vantage point at a different time of year, um, maybe in a different season. All of those things being the case, having had that, it's still easier to be sympathetic uh, to to that person. And it's much the same way when it comes to ecstatic states. Uh, so it's easier to be sympathetic to those who describe a near-death experience when it is something that's personally familiar or even a sort of out-of-body type of experience. And this goes on down the line. In any case, that's uh, Kripal's basic position. And if you'd like to know more about his work after listening to the interview, because we do a career-spanning interview that covers everything from his Catholic upbringing up right to the present, uh, I'm going to put his website and links to several of his books in the show notes, which if you're listening to this, you know where those are because you clicked the show. All right, y'all, enough of my yammering. Let's hear from Jeff. So it is our great honor to have on the podcast today, Jeffrey J. Kripal, uh, a.k.a. Spider-Man. Uh, or is it Spider-Man, a.k.a. Jeffrey Kripal, which which goes on your door jam or the, your uh, your nameplate now? Well, it just says Spider-Man, but he, he lets me use his office mat, so I, I just, <laughs> he, he never I, I, complains. I was wondering, because I know on your uh, on your professor's office, you had Spider-Man on the nameplate, but I was wondering if you are now Dean Spider-Man. No, it just wow. my nameplate just says it's that's that's his office. I just oh, okay, it. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, so wonderful. Thank you for for coming on, and I'll I'll speak to this at the in the intro. But you and I have known each other for almost like fifteen years, so I'll I'll do my best to normal interview, but it'll probably end up in chit chat at some point. It's okay. Uh, um, so since we are under the auspices of the divinity school i've taken to asking everyone the same question to start which is uh what is your background in religion so by which i mean how were you raised were you raised in a particular religious tradition uh and so how did it impact you <laughs> those are minor questions right i mean yeah yeah so 
Okay. So the, what I always say here is that when I talk about my ideas in the abstract, people look at me like I'm stupid or crazy or dumb or something. But when I locate them in this life story, then it makes a lot of sense to people. And so I always tell this life story. I mean, I I grew up in um, southeastern Nebraska in a um, German-Czech Roman Catholic family. And I was uber-Catholic uh, as an adult. I mean, uber, uber. I mean, I would put to shame anybody's Catholicism when I was 12 or 13. I was annoyingly Catholic, like the kid you didn't like because he was a religious jerk. Mm. Um, and I also became very anorexic about the same time. And so I was suffering from basically wasting away and being super pious. And we didn't have, even have a word yet in American English for that. Uh, Karen Carpenter died in, I think, 84. This would have been in the late 70s. Um, I went to a Benedictine monastery for my seminary training. I wanted to be a monk. So again, I was uber Catholic. Mm. <laughs> um, I got turned on um, at this seminary to the comparative study of religion. And I also was healed mm -hmm. <laughs> of my anorexia through psychoanalysis and some very wise and very patient monks who guided me through all that and helped me figure out why I was not eating. Um, and so I was really interested in sexuality. I was really interested in sexual orientation. I was really interested in Catholicism and Christianity. I was really interested in other traditions. And I decided I didn't want to be a monk I, because I didn't. Well, I wanted to ask the questions and a religious vocation was going to squelch those. So I went to graduate school and I trained in something called the history of religions, which is a particular lineage in the comparative study of religion. So to answer your question, <laughs> religion means everything to me, Matt. Yeah. I'm, I'm like super, I'm, I'm the most religious guy you'll ever meet, except today I don't have a religion. That, that's kind of where I'm at. Religion, uh, the religion of no religion, as one might say in a subtitle. Right. Um, so the what's interesting, a number of people would have come to your work uh, starting with authors of the impossible, right? After the paranormal term, we'll get there. But not everyone knows uh, that you were trained as an endologist, mm -hmm. right? Um, right? So right. what was it that drew you to study, you know, uh, Hindu uh, saints and mystics? Um, yeah, and basically, how did that get you, you started on your trajectory? Yeah, basically the the short answer sexual male sexual orientation. I mm -hmm. I came to the conclusion that if one was a male, one had a male body. This is in the 1980s, by the way. So this is how we spoke. We didn't we didn't speak like we do today. Um, if someone has a male body and one is Catholic or Christian, then and God is male, then there's a strong preference in the Christian mystical traditions for a homoerotic orientation or, or a same-sex kind of union between a male body and a male god. And I got interested in the Hindu tantric traditions because they provided a, another model. They, they had female um, goddesses who were at the core of the tradition. And so I was just really interested in this question of whether, frankly, male heterosexuality could be integrated into a mystical system. Um, and so that's really what drew me to India. I spent the first, I, I was not interested in anything paranormal, nothing yeah. until 
probably about 08 or 09, um, I was interested in questions of gender and sexuality and not for for um, academic reasons, for, for really personal, spiritual and psychosexual reasons. And that then translated into a scholarly life. But my whole early career was about nothing but what I called the erotic, which is this fusion of 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 human sexuality and and divine transcendence. Mm-hmm. And so that that's as good a place as any to speak to. And you've written about it extensively uh, that night in Calcutta. Um, and everybody's going to ask you about this, but there's something that, uh, that I kind of want to put together. Um, on the one hand, you've written, and even up to your most recent book, that in a sense, all your books come out of what happened there, right? Come out of that night in some form or yeah. fashion. Yeah. And it's interesting at the same time how your interpretation of that night shifts over time too, right? Yeah. So at first it's electrocution, then it's tied to the erotic, then there's starts to go paranormal. And recently you're talking about cardiac events. So I'm very curious, how have you come to... I guess the easy question would be like, what do you think really happened? But I think the, <laughs> but I think the better question is like, how how has that night served as, as you know something that you've thought with over the years, right? To yeah, yeah. bring out your books. Yeah. So maybe we should say what that night is first. That might be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, I was seeking what we might call a mystical experience for my entire brief life at that point i i suppose that was 1988 so i was you know i was all of 26 you know uh, at that point um and i went to india very much seeking a mystical experience so it was this was an intentional kind of practice and and desire the event itself happened during kali puja which is in really usually late october early november i guess it's very much like halloween i call it halloween on steroids <laughs> i mean they, it's not just arms cut off arms and decapitated heads but it's actual decapitated heads like goat heads and things you mm. know in, in the rituals and um the hindu goddess kali is this you know she has this fierce form um with her tongue sticking out, standing on her husband, or, and then she has this gentle or beneficent form, this blue form of that's much more motherly and gentle. And so you see both of them during Kali Puja. And during that Puja, it's about a three, four day cycle. I uh, woke up one night and my body didn't, wasn't awake, but my mind was, and this energy entered the, entered into me or came out of me. Um, and it was doing things to me <laughs> very intentionally and not have anything to do with my own agency or my own will. And um, and it ended in, a, in an out-of-body experience um, that was quite dramatic. And, and, and I remember getting back into my body and feeling like something, some kind of elect- spiritual electrocution or some kind of kundalini awakening, as the tradition would say, had happened. And I didn't know what it was, Matt. Um, mm. There was a visual component, which was very erotic, but there was no goddess or, or god scene in it. But it fit perfectly into the Shakta Tantric tradition I was absorbed in mm. and had been studying for years. I was I was in Calcutta um, trying to perfect my Bengali and working on the Katamrita, this five-volume immense piece of 
uh, literature that comes out of the early 20th century. So I was completely absorbed in this Shakta Tantric tradition and all of its symbols and, and language. And, and that was the context in which this that night occurred. How, how did it influence my later work? I think um, it made me deeply sympathetic mm. to people's ecstatic experiences, to their out-of-body experiences, to their near-death experiences, to their abduction experiences later on. I mean, all of these things made a lot of intuitive sense to me because of, of that night. Um, I did, sh the interpretations of, of what happened have shifted over the years, and I think that's intentional. I think that's part of part of the hermeneutical dynamic. I, I, I don't think, you know, your naive question, what really happened? I don't think yeah. there's an answer to that because I think it's designed to be engaged and to be and to mean different things at different points in the life cycle to to answer the question in a I hope in a not too roundabout way. Mm. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense and aligns with your work. So yeah. uh some so you go to grad school and you learn Bengali and you get trained as an endologist and then you leave it behind. People, why? You know, I mean, I, I went to grad school. I got a PhD. I couldn't imagine just putting aside all of it. Going, new thing yeah, now. No. Here we go. It wasn't just Bengali. It was Sanskrit too. It was, you know, 10 years of studying Indian culture. It was it was the whole shebang. And um, the short answer of why I left it behind was because I had to. <laughs> um, it wasn't something I chose to do. In fact, I chose not to do it. I chose very strongly to stay in um, Indology. And I was so hated and so um, um, dismissed uh, and vilified for my first book called Kali's Child that it just was unbearable. And mm. I I left the field not because I wanted to, but because I had to, to preserve my emotional and physical health, to, to answer your question. Yeah. I, I was essentially targeted, um, mostly on the internet. The internet was new at that point, but I was also targeted in the Indian parliament and by politicians and computer scientists in Silicon Valley who basically mm -hmm. targeted me and, and made my life uh, absolutely miserable. Yeah. And so I'm assuming you haven't been back to India for any reason. No, no, of course, of course not. not. I, yeah. No, no, of course not. If I were to land in India, I, I, I don't know what would happen. I, I don't want to see. Yeah. So, um, let me bring this back up. So, so you you're moving away from from being an endologist, not by your own choice, but another thing happens right around the same time, which is that you get tagged by Mike Murphy at Esalen. And starting in, as I understand it, you start researching your big Esalen book in the late 90s, right? And then it takes into the mid 2000s, something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, what see, what, what happened was I was in a foxhole. You know, I was being, <laughs> there were bombs going off all around me. And it turns out that the very same book that that I was being bombed for was the book Mike Mike Murphy loved. Mm -hmm. It's actually a very loving book, Matt. If you read Collie's Child, it's it's hard to set it down and and not think that this author really um, adores this saint, which would be accurate actually. Mm -hmm. But it also deals with some really difficult issues around sexual trauma and abuse and and all kinds of things, and it doesn't pull it doesn't pull any punches as it were it tries really hard to deal with it and to humanize 
this individual, but also to honor and to to explore his his ecstasies. Mm -hmm. And Mike read the book in '98 and was just basically blown away by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and called me one night very late. I mean, he he didn't realize the three hour time difference between <laughs> California and Pennsylvania, and yeah. called me and invited me out there and. I, I, of course, knew who he was, and I knew what Eslin was, and I went out there in November of 98, and it was a couple of years, Matt, uh, as the college child stuff was getting worse and worse. I, I went to Harvard, actually. I taught at Harvard mm -hmm. for a year in 2000, 2001, and the attacks on me got really, really bad, and so about 01 or 02, I just had made, I made the decision after years and years of struggling with it, that I couldn't stay in the field. And I decided to write the Eslin book really as a, a mode of survival, mm. of intellectual and spiritual survival. I did not write that book for the hell of it. Yeah. I did not write that book just as another exercise in, in history. I wrote that book because I was trying to save myself and I was trying to survive in a very ugly and very hateful world, essentially. Mm. And it's, I, I think it's important to point out that in addition to being a very loving book, and there are much harsher treatments of Ramakrishna uh, that you can read, um, it also won History of Religion's Best First Book Award. Like yeah. that, that's not nothing, you know, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. So, you know, the scholarship was, was top notch. Um, the, the, the book was, you know, the book was embraced by scholars and it was despised by people outside the academy. But then what happened at, with the uh, the attacks and the targeting was then, then academics got nervous around mm -hmm. me and around the book and basically pulled away. And I, I was alone. I, mm -hmm. I was the first American scholar really to be so targeted. There were a dozens of people after me. But I was just a kid. I was just, I had written a dissertation, Matt, yeah. you know, and, and it became a book. Okay. And suddenly I was this international criminal, you know, essentially. Um, so it was very dramatic. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think we can overestimate the drama here and the the relevance this had on my, my career. And it also explains, I think, my profound suspicion around culture and religion. I I really am deeply suspicious and deeply critical of uh, religion in any culture and any any nation state in any society because partly because of that experience. Mm. Uh, understandably so. Um, so I, I want to dig into Esalen just a little bit because it was this safe haven, this foxhole, right? Yeah. But then you've also been involved at Esalen for twenty five years. Right. You've played a reasonably yeah. significant role. Yeah, you know, I, I would say. So I thought about different ways of parsing this. But first, I mean, we should say what Esalen is. Um, and you know better than I. But uh, what do you think? Because Esalen has the Center for Theory and Research, and it does a lot of research into things that are academic and invites academics. What could the academic study of religion learn from Esalen? <laughs> um, well there are different esalens okay yeah I, um we're the center for theory and research is the the aspect or the think tank arm the the research arm of esalen that i'm most associated with 
Um, it's also important to say I wasn't associated with the Institute when I wrote the book. I, yeah. I the book came out in 07. I think I I was asked to join the board in 010 or 011. I said no, by the way. Hmm. Uh, and then I was asked to join the board again. And I said yes. And, and so I'm still on the board and very much part of that movement. What does what does the academy have to learn from Eslin that um, that there are certain questions you can't ask or can't approach or or pursue in the academy, but people do anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Eslin and, uh, is a very good uh, container of those kinds of questions. And so I think Eslin has become a home of sorts for the the heterodox or the marginalized intellectual who is trying to ask questions really around metaphysical or parapsychological issues that simply cannot be addressed today in 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 the academy in any in any coherent or or disciplined way hmm. and just because it's fair what could Esselin learn from the academy well the truth is it does learn from the academy. yeah I mean, I mean, these are academics, you know, I mean, these, these are people who are right in the gut of the academy who are coming to Esalen. It's, Esalen has never not learned from the academy. I mean, um, the two founders were schooled by a professor of competitive religion at Stanford in the 1950s. And the place has been the home of academics and intellectuals from day one. So what can Esalen learn from the academy? Pretty much everything. Um you know, so I, I don't, I, it's not even symmetrical. It's not even a, a contest. Um, but I think the, I think the Academy can definitely see Esalen as a kind of, well, it's a school of the superhumanities, which I'm sure mm. we'll get. To. Oh yeah, that's, we're, we're getting there. It's, that, <laughs> that's uh, on the horizon of this yeah. interview. Um, but first, uh, so uh, back in, I I keep waffling. I think you guys announced a uh, gem or Gnosticism, esotericism, and mysticism concentration at Rice. Yeah. I first saw it online in, I think, late 2008. Um, uh, the reason why I know this, I started in 2009, and that's when it took off. And then there was the uh, Hidden Histories, Hidden God, that it was really the launch event, and that was 2010. So we're like at 15 years of gem in the academy. So uh I what I want to ask is first what was the aim in founding this when yeah it was you I believe April DeConnick would have been advising here and William Parsons you guys would have been sort of the three that were there at the time although you were chair and you know it's been 15 years how has the academy shifted in ways that are either conducive or not conducive to gem over the last 15 years? Well, first of all, so I became okay. What here's what happened. <laughs> I'll tell you this story. So Tony Penn and I arrived at Rice in 02, 03, somewhere right in there. And what I call mom and dad of the department, the two senior scholars, Edith Wishagrod and, and Werner Kelber, retired mm -hmm. about that same time. And Edith and Werner were really Edith worked in essentially Jewish philosophy and Werner worked in New Testament. And they they were really the people who could train graduate students and, and help them get jobs. And basically what happened is mom and dad left and the house was <laughs> given over to the kids. And Bill Parsons was chair when I was hired, but then I became chair in 04. 
and was chair mostly till 2013 with, with a year there and there um, where I was on leave. So the GEM program was really founded under, well, under my leadership or when I was chair. And basically what happened was we got together as a department and we figured out very quickly, <laughs> it was it was a no brainer. There's no way we could compete with the big programs, you know, the Harvards and the Yales and the Chicago's and, you know, the Dukes and the big, the big dip schools. There's no way we had, we had 10 people to their 40 or 50 or whatever, you know, and it was, it was just no way. So we decided we needed to create what we called an intellectual niche model. And we landed on a number of, of things, but two of the things we landed on was African-American religion and, and gem. And once we landed on those two, we started to form programs around them. Tony and Elias really handled the African, African-American religion um, part of that equation. And then we started to hire into the GEM focus. We didn't have it originally. Mm. Um, so April's hiring, April DeConnick's hiring was, was very much a part of that mission. Um, as was the later ones, Claire Fanger and 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 Brian Ogren and 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 so on. Um, so all through from 2004 to 2013, we developed basically this curriculum and basically this faculty. And then when Professor DeConnick or April took over the department as chair in 2013, it really solidified, and she really helped give it curricular and structural weight, essentially. Hmm. Um, now you know. Now it's it seems to all be there. I mean, I I you know I often say it's the largest program of its kind in the world. It really is. There's six or seven of us, depending on how you count us, who do nothing but focus on Gnosticism, esotericism, or or mysticism, and that spans really from the ancient world to the modern world, as you know. Mm. So that's really the the quick history of it. I I, I would just emphasize it's it's not a one person invention. It's oh, really okay. a it's really a collegial enterprise, and it was led early on by myself. But but it was really April who let who gave it shape, you know. Afterwards, and um, and the future, I don't know what the future is. You know, <laughs> I, I remember when Werner Kelber retired. Um, Werner was really interesting, and I asked Werner for help with searching for his replacement. He said, "Absolutely not." And why? And, well, he did it for moral reasons. He was like, uh, I shouldn't have any influence over the direction of this department. It's uh, he was very, he's Brenner's a very moral, very prophetic kind of individual, and he felt very strongly about that. And I suppose I feel very strongly about it as well. I, I don't know where the department will go in, in 10 or 15 years, but it's really it's also not up to me. Um it's not it's not up to my colleagues my who are my same age either it's up to the the younger faculty and and those whom they hire and that's just the nature of the academy matt i i saw that in the dean's office i think it's a good thing mm -hmm. um i i think that renewal and that that new energy is a, is a is a very positive thing to to affirm and 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 to and to let go like letting go is is as good as as taking control and and mm -hmm. you know creating something new uh, like, uh, I think I'd heard part of that story, but I hadn't heard the whole story. So that was fun. I hadn't heard the Werner, Werner part. 
Um, one of the things in this, we just had AAR. And so this isn't me saying it because that would just be, you know, fluffing the department I'm out of. But uh, I talked to David Odoricio and he's like, look at you rice people. Like the the gem, the mega, the mysticism unit, the esoteric. It's just, you know, it's infused everything there. So yeah. there, it, it ha- does have legs, um, very weird legs, but we're from like. I, I get that a lot. I mean, yeah. when I travel in Europe in particular, but also when I travel in the States or Canada, the the gem program is internationally seen as a kind of leader in, in this particular inquiry. And, you know, the focus, Matt, is really on what I would, I mean, you know this, but <laughs> it's on the marginal or the heterodox forms of these religious traditions. You still need to be trained in the religious traditions. The traditions themselves are really important, but the gem focus is really looking at those marginalized or heterodox systems that did not become orthodox that did not were not embraced by the tradition so um i think our program is is seen in a in a very international way as a kind of it's a kind of a leader it's not the only one Mm -hmm. um there's of course a great program in amsterdam which in some ways is much more focused but um you know, ours is certainly larger and 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 certainly part of that same that same ecology, as it were. And so, speaking of heretics and this sort of tradition, in 2010, uh, while the paranormal had been an element in your work, building up to that a little bit, uh, it became sort of like the center, the main dish, and with authors of the impossible. So, what is it? that drew you to make the paranormal such a big part of your work then? Yeah. The, the short answer is people, (laughs) um, human beings did Uh, essentially what happened was, um, I wrote this very big book on Esalen called America called Esalen America and the religion of no religion. And to write that book, I talked to and sat with and spent lots of time with probably hundreds of people and they told me the craziest damn stories I'd ever heard. And I knew that A, these things could not have possibly happened and B, that they happened. And I was really curious about that disconnect. Why why I thought they couldn't happen, but they clearly did. And I also looked back on my own graduate training, which by the way, I love. I I deeply admire my mentors and my school. I nothing but gratitude. Um, but I looked back on it, I was like, wow, we never once even talked about the miraculous or the anomalous or the strange or the the paranormal. Not not once. I'm not talking about a little, not at all, you know? <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I don't think there was some committee sitting around saying, we're not going to talk about that. I I just think it was where the Academy was at in in the 1980s and 90s. And whenever we ran into a miraculous event or or something, an apparition or something, we we, we read it as as an exaggeration or some kind of power game or some kind of social representation, you know, all all the things academics do. And I realized listening to these people in the 2000s that none of that actually worked mm. um that it just it, it's not that it was false it's just that it was inadequate hopelessly inadequate 
and that this is not really what drove these people to keep these stories and to tell them. And so I just became really curious about these categories and why they're so verboten. And, and when I, so I wrote Authors of the Impossible, it was really just a, it started out as an introduction to mutants and mystics, by the way. I thought I was going <laughs> to capture everything in 20 or 30 pages and that, that didn't work. So I end up writing a whole book and, and uh, it's really a kind of intellectual history of, of the paranormal from the late 19th, early 20th century to, to today is really what it is. Um, but to answer your question, it, it was people and it was their experiences that I was listening to and that I knew could not be explained or captured by our reigning methods in, yeah. in the humanities. So I want to, the tail end of what you just said feeds really well into my next question. Uh, so you wrote Mutants, and then soon thereafter, you co-wrote um, The Supernatural with Whitley Strieber, who has been on on this show recently. And so I want to, I'm going to give you the question that I'm sure all of us get asked when we say, hey, we're religion scholars. And by the way, I'm really into aliens and stuff. So what is it that uh, bringing Strieber with his life of high strangeness onto the comparative table, uh, what does that add to the study of comparative mystical literature and putting him there with Ramakrishna and St. Teresa? Like, what what do we get from that exercise? Well, before I answer that, let me just observe, you're the dude with the alien head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. Um, uh. So the, the answer to your question a lot, um, I I think Whitley is a kind of modern day shaman with without a culture to support him or to make sense of him. That that's really how I read Whitley Strieber. I I think Whitley is put together differently than certainly I am, um, that a lot of us are. Weird things happen around him. I've seen weird things happen around him. Um, he's a walking poltergeist machine. Um, and so to think with Whitley and to talk to Whitley and to write that book with Whitley is very much also to talk and think about Teresa and Ramakrishna and, and Rumi and anybody else we want to name here. I don't draw any distinction between Whitley Strieber and, and historical saints. Um, I think sainthood is a, a, um, a social uh, affirmation or construction of something that that a lot of people have, in fact have and uh, i think it's 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 the result of a society it's not the result of human experience or human potentiality which i think is much broader and and much more universal than we imagine yeah and uh, so to that end um one of the the interesting things that you started what 2017 2018 started assembling papers for the archives of the impossible yeah. so yeah. if you could just tell us a little bit about that and what authors because i know it started with whitley and no with it actually the... didn't start with whitley oh it was okay well i i will step back and let the person who runs that <laughs> tell us what happened so this was a fantastic idea which means it wasn't my idea <laughs> um it started in about 2014 um, Jacques Vallée actually 
had picked me up. I think he was taking me to the airport and he asked me for help placing his papers and files in a university archive because he was very concerned about the the future of his research. And I was like, huh, that's that's a really interesting question. So I went back and of course I went right to our archive, the director of our archive. I said, hey, can we do this? And it turns out we could. And it turns out that our archive here, Woodson Research Center, is very much invested in the research of our faculty, which in this case happened to be me. So they were very um, supportive. And it took us about four years, by the way, to negotiate that gift. And there were a couple of reasons. One was he, Jacques wanted to put everything on a 10-year moratorium where no one could see anything except in, in people internal to Rice. Um, and it was quite, it was quite valuable. Mm -hmm. His, his papers were quite valuable. And so we negotiated that gift. And in 2018, it started to arrive. And then I started going to my other, my other contacts. I went to Whitley first. I said, Hey, Whitley, Jacques just gave us everything. What about you? And he, of course, was like, yeah, great idea. And so he he started to send us the uh, letters, the communion letters that he and Anne had, had collected after communion came out in 1987. And then I called Ed May, and, and Ed was the director of the Stargate, um, Stargate program or project at SRI. And then Leslie Kane got involved and wanted to help and Diana Pasolka wanted to help. And I mean, it just, it was kind of this, what I call a black hole. It just started sucking in collections. And today we have about 15 collections. Mm. Our latest large one again was John Mack from Harvard, by nice. the way. Yeah. Um, and that came to us really through the director of the Johnny Mack Institute, a woman named Karen Austin, who was convinced that the Mac papers belonged in the archive of the impossible, along with those of Valet and Streber and, and May, um, May and, and and so forth. So that's kind of pretty much what I do full time now is mm -hmm. I try, I work in those archives. I've been working in them on my sabbatical. I write about them and I host conferences. We've had two big conferences, which, completely shattered every IT model we had um, in the university. Um, and I'm trying to fundraise for them. If any of your listeners <laughs> is looking to give a lot of money to, to a university, we desperately need resources and help to, we're digitalizing these things now. We're trying to and oh and, wow. Okay. Run, run, run some AI through them eventually. Got it. So just so I get a handle on what is coming in there with Mac, are you getting his personal papers or are you getting like his write-up of all the abduction accounts and interviews that he would have done? We've got pretty much everything from about 1987 on. I mean, uh, there's, I think Karin digitalized or oversaw the digitalization of two to 300 boxes of material, Matt. And, and now there are lots of IRB concerns for some of that. And a lot of that, a lot of the Mac materials on moratorium as well. Well, it all is on moratorium at the moment, but there are some serious um, 
uh, IRB concerns there that we want to honor and 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 follow as well. So it depends. IRB, our Institutional Review Board, is our, of course, our university's internal uh, ethical board, and each of the collections in the archives presents itself very differently to it. Some of the some of the collections, like the Strieber letters, are probably not even of concern, and some of the files, like those of John Mack, are medical related and they are of high concern because we're trying to protect medical. We are protecting mm-hmm. medical records, so. Um, it just depends. It depends on the collection and and what the particular process is. And can you mentioned the moratorium? I've also seen online a um, it was like a little scholarship to go work in the archives. So can outside scholars come and do research at Rice, or is it just Rice students and Rice faculty right now? Oh, no, no, anybody can come from anywhere in oh. the world and work in the archives and work with the collections that are available to them, which is most of them, by the way, Matt, mm-hmm. um, the Valet collections offline and the, the Mac collections offline, but the rest are, are online and, and there. Um, we haven't fully archived all of them, by the way. I mean, it takes labor and time mm-hmm. to do this, but some of the collections are heavily archived and are available to researchers. So it's, it's, it's a public archive, Matt. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's available. It's not online. We have not digitalized it, again, for money reasons. Um, but that's certainly our intention. Got it. So I uh, want to sort of move ahead. We're, we're hitting that horizon. And so we're hitting the superhumanities, which obviously grows out in a certain sense from, you know, this paranormal turn and uh, your study of Whitley, et cetera. But uh, what I... Never, you know, I noticed while reading it is that it's also very much a response to certain crises and discussions that are happening in the academy and not just religious studies, right? I mean, academy broadly construed. So what inspired you to write the superhumanities? Uh, the dean's office. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the short answer. I I spent four years as an associate dean of the School of Humanities. And I worked very closely with the dean, um, a colleague named Professor Kathleen Canning, who's dean of our School of Humanities, and um, Professor Faye Yarbrough, who was the other associate dean. Uh, she's also a historian. And I, I, I probably helped interview 90 people, you know, during those four years. And that was also the years of COVID. I became associate dean in the fall of 2019. I stepped down a few months ago in July. So I was associate deaning all through COVID and just was watching these crises up close and trying to help manage them, you know, here here at Rice. I um I was very concerned about a lot of the things I saw happening in the humanities. But I was also deeply impressed by humanists, frankly, by my colleagues who, um, when they did learn about what I was doing or what I was interested in, they were deeply sympathetic and uh, very supportive. And so I wanted to write about both the the problems that our, our societies are facing and how the humanities can help, but I also wanted to write about that enthusiasm and that affirmation that I was feeling. And the superhumanities really comes out of both of those impulses. 
both the the suspicion around religion and society in general, but also the deep affirmation that I felt from my colleagues, but that I also sensed in the in the historical literature. Um, and I and I tried to say both of that both of those are the superhumanities together. The superhumanities are the humanities. Yeah. Um, but they have an emphasis on altered states and and the superhuman, and don't want to take that off the table uh, either. Hmm. Uh, so one of the things that struck me, and it's easy to read this book in tandem, both with Roads of Excess, and you make the the point that it's you write one book right in the end of the acknowledgement um but also uh with with serpent's gift as well i i see the the dialogue there but one of the things in serpent's gift you said i don't want to write about mystical literature anymore i want to write mystical literature and then this is the first time i mean it's been in the background but th there's something like philosophical even kind of theological that's in there right so what was is this uh a response to sort of the same things that you saw happening in the humanities or was the impulse to put more of that theology or philosophy out there did it come from somewhere else well yeah there's a couple answers to that what you know roads of excess palaces of wisdom i wrote that in 2001 that came out in 2001 a long time ago and the basic argument, or one of the arguments of that book, is that scholars of mysticism have themselves mystical experiences, and that their theories of mystical literature are based on altered states. And I looked at five different intellectuals and looked at their altered states and their theories of, of mystical literature and tried to show that. The superhumanities is sort of an update of that same idea, only it expands into really all of the humanities and from philosophy to English literature to Asian studies to pretty much everything. Um, and I wanted I wanted to show that that the great ideas don't come from thinking. Mm -hmm. they they come from being thought. they, they there's something in, in uh, external or independent about great ideas that are revealed to humanists and to philo philosophical thinkers. They, they don't think their way to them, which is, I think is a great mistake that people make. The other thing I was trying to respond to, again, to go back to the paranormal, is why do, why do intellectuals take things off the table? Why do they not? Why do they reject people? when people are telling them honestly that such and such came out of the wall or they left their body or they had some kind of amazing um, coincidence in their lives that changed the direction of their lives. Why do we write those off as social representations or projections or hallucinations or any other easy word we want to invoke? Why don't we take those seriously? So I wanted to really dig down to why some intellectuals dismiss human beings who have experiences that don't fit into those intellectuals' worldviews. And what I concluded is that we, we don't want to think about metaphysical issues or ontological issues. We want to reduce everything we can to society, or we want to reduce it all to nature if 
we're trying to follow the sciences. But what we don't want to do is try to take it on its own terms and, and really listen to it, like listen to the people, not not reduce them to our own models or theories. Hmm. Yeah, um, and it's it's nice you've been critical of reading all of these things as anecdotes for what fifteen years, which um, and, I hate you know, I hate that word. I hate the word so much. Uh, yeah, it's it's grading its uh, nails on a chalkboard. Um, yeah, and so. <sighs> I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question because it's such a loaded issue, but it, I, one of the things I appreciated both about superhumanities and uh, what I've read from how to think of possibly your next book, which is currently available for presale, uh, is that uh, this more balanced view, as, as I'm reading it, of sort of Arano's figures or somebody like Harold Bloom, right, uh, who, you know, have been cast aside in many ways or just shrugged aside. So uh, how do you sort of respond to the criticisms of these people as ethically or politically they're wrong while at the same time asserting that they're valuable for understanding yeah. certain phenomena? And, you know, obviously the history of religious studies and humanities, you can't do without any of those figures. But in any case, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the mic. Yeah, I no, I I get your question. I I get that question a lot, and okay. you know, the easy response or the quick response is a badly used idea is not the same as a bad idea. And every idea has been used badly. There's no such thing as an idea that has not been used badly. But we can't equate the the way those ideas are used with the ideas themselves in, in every case. Sometimes I suppose we can, but certainly not in most cases. Um, I also think people are complicated, Matt. I think human beings can do all sorts of nasty things. And to, to answer your question, I think the criticisms of people like Bloom are probably spot on, but so are the criticisms of Michel Foucault and Sigmund Freud and Martin Heidegger and Friedrich Nietzsche and you know everybody else. I, I'm sure the criticisms are, are just and correct, but they're not absolute and they're not adequate is what I would say. In other words, I think intellectuals have insights that are not reducible to their social conditions or their ethical or moral positions, which today we can look back on and say, we don't, we don't agree with those, or we want to condemn those. Amen. But that doesn't mean that everything that person said is wrong or, or, or without value. Um, and I am sure, Matt, I am absolutely positive. Our, our descendants are going to look back on us and say, what the, what the hell were you thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, why why were you consuming everything why why were you burning all that those natural resources why why were you eating all that meat why were you what why were you systemic racists why were you you know on and on and on we are going to be condemned by by our descendants and and justly so but again every every generation has something i think that it can that it can offer if we're just willing to listen and and take it in. And I think altered states are one way. Um, I think, let me put it this way. 
altered states happen to people regardless of their moral qualities. And it's altered states that produce insight and produce new worldviews and new ideas. And sometimes those come from people we don't like. And sometimes they come from people we do like. But that's the way it is. That's the nature of altered states. Yeah. I remember coming across it, you did forget which edited volume it was. You've you've uh, co-authored a few. Uh, the one where the mystical is not the ethical, right? Yeah. And I re just having been steeped in spiritual but not religious discourse uh, throughout my teen years and early twenties, I was like, that can't be true, right? There's it's obviously the case that great mystics are also great moral people. I'm like, oh man, that's just I didn't actually read anything. So then <laughs> once I started going to school and going to grad school, I was like, yep, okay, it's it's far more complicated than that. You and know, so so Matt, I was trained in the eighties and mm -hmm. We were we were coming out of the counterculture and coming out of um, the well coming out of the seventies obviously, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of spiritual teachers that were being um, exposed as people who had engaged in various forms of usually sexual abuse. It wasn't always sexual, but it was often sexual abuse. And I saw I saw people split on this. You know, people would either say, "Well, it never happened." You know, the, the person was pure. It was usually some purity code that was invoked. Um, or it did happen, and there's nothing to any of the spiritual experiences that people had around this person. And I was like, well, both of those clearly are not true. I mean, clearly it happened. Clearly this, this usually a guy, it was not always a guy, but usually a guy. This guy did some really bad things. And... These people had these spiritually transformative experiences around them. Both are true. So let's let's admit the complexity of the situation and not and not fall into one of these these simplicities that that I still think are simplicities. Mm -hmm. um, and that's tough. That's tough for people to hear. It's tough to think that way. It's particularly tough today, I think, to think that. But I thought that in the 1980s, and I think that in the 2020s. I haven't changed a wit on that um but yeah. but it can make those people very tough popular. to study i'll say yeah. i'll say yeah. that that has not been a popular view yeah yeah uh but it, you know it, at the same time though I, I think there's a certain when you think about the recent turn to like conspirituality uh, you know, Eagle Asprum, et cetera, they're acknowledging this, right? Um, this that complexity that people like David Icke can have extraordinary experiences and be terrible people doing awful things and yeah. believing in lizard archons, right? Like, but at the same time, like, you know, you can't, he, I forget, David at the beginning of his book says he's the first prophet he ever saw was David Icke on TV talking, you know, prophetically. And I, I think that's accurate. Um, in any case, that's that's a whole bucket of worms. Uh, but Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's let's put David Icke aside. Yeah. You know, I, I, let's always put also, the losers aside. Yeah, <laughs> lizard archons aside. I mean, saints are, are weird people, man. Yeah. I mean, saints are messed up people and they're saints. You know, so I guess it does. In some ways, it goes back to my Catholicism too. It's like these were extraordinary human beings, 
and their lives were really messed up in a lot of ways. And I think both of those things are absolutely true, not in every case, but but in a lot of cases. And I'll I'll tell you a story here that that's related. You know, I I listen to a lot of experiencers. I mean, I I mean I I sit down and I talk to sometimes I even write books with experiencers. Whitley's not mm -hmm. the only one, you know, Elizabeth Crohn's another one. And when I listen to people, I'm waiting for two things. I'm not telling them this. And, and if you're listening, you didn't hear this. But the first thing I'm listening for is trauma. It doesn't have to be sexual trauma. It can be physical trauma. It can be war trauma. It can be uh, emotional trauma. It can be any kind of trauma. But I'm really listening hard for some kind of major traumatic event or series of events in their past. And the other thing I'm listening for is sexuality you know, some kind of uh, conflict or complexity around uh, sexuality or gender or, or gender identity or sexual orientation or something. And usually the person in about the second or third or fourth rendition of the story will open up around, around both of those things. And, and so I've just learned over the decades that people are complicated and you have to somehow break open a person to access these altered states and some of those ways that the person's broken open are not moral ways they're not even necessarily good but they still happen a car accident is not a good thing but people have out-of-body experiences transformative religious experiences in car accidents does that mean we should all go drive our toyotas into the nearest oak tree no doesn't mean that but there's something about that violence and that trauma that induces this, this spiritual opening in people. Um, so that's the argument I'm trying to make, Matt. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's, I think it's a moral argument, actually. I think it's ultimately about taking people seriously and listening to them and not dismissing them because of uh, A, B, or C. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this brings me to a question I didn't have written down, but it's one that's been in the back of my mind for a while. Uh, your early work, you are doing very strong psychoanalytic readings, right? Like that's clearly what you were trained in and do it well. Um, and you see psychoanalysis pop up in your work later, but it's never a psychoanalytic reading. It's the history of psychoanalysis having these romantic origins and these ties to mesmer. I'm curious, where do you how do you see the role of, you know, psychoanalytic reading when you're talking to people like this? Does it inform you at all anymore? Or is of it? Of course. No, uh, of course it does. I, I I, think, of course it informs. I mean, it does not, maybe not consciously. I'm not thinking about psychoanalysis yeah. as I'm just listening to people for sure. But I am absolutely convinced, for example, that um, people are not in control of themselves that you know things happen to people that a psychoanalyst would say is unconscious i i wouldn't use that language today but i think a lot of things that happen to people are not in their control and and happen seem to happen from the outside i'm not sure they are from the outside mm. but they are certainly experienced as such so that that distinction between the conscious and the unconscious is fundamental still to the way I think about things. I also think that most visions, most apparitions, most dreams are symbolic. Um, 
and by that I mean they they should not be interpreted literally. There's some there's a phenomenon behind the phenomenon. There's a translation process that's going on, and that translation process is necessitated because there's two radically different forms of consciousness that cannot speak to one another in any other way, and that there's censorship going on. You know, there, there's something not getting through as well. And all of that is basic to psychoanalytic dream interpretation that I, you know, I learned from Freud. I learned from Wendy Doniger, actually, back in the 1980s. And that's really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a good time to ask my next question, uh, talking about these two forms of consciousness trying to meet with one another. I, I feel as though I have a very high threshold for the weird. Uh, like I'm pretty comfortable with most things. I'm I'm okay. Uh, everything we've talked about so far, good with it. But there's two things that freak me out. Uh, one are implants. That just yeah. I just I just can't. Is that's too much. And the other is telepathic praying mantises. <laughs> what the hell? Like why are there so many telepathic praying mantises in folklore and in alien encounters and in visions? Uh, so fortunately, in your new book, you have a chapter on praying mantises. So if you could talk me down from a wall and explain <laughs> what is going on with all the praying mantis imagery, that would make me very, very happy. I'm not sure I can talk you down, Matt. <laughs> I, I, I'd it's the freakiest thing. Oh, my goodness. I, I would much rather watch you squirm. Um, yeah. You know, I don't. I don't claim to know the answer to that. I mean, is the is is the quick answer? Um, I mean, one one response is that there are telepathic praying mantises, <laughs> and they show up yeah. to people and they do things to people, and that's why you have so many stories of them. Maybe um, people have had um, experiences of praying mantises with praying mantises, you know, with the tiny insects, and people have speculated that. Well, maybe the insects are somehow doing this, or maybe there's some kind of giant telepathic praying mantis that's using the insects to do this. I mean, there are all kinds of all kinds of models, and I don't I don't presume to know which one is the case. But I want us to be shocked by that, Matt. I, I don't want to explain that away. Um, for one thing, I can't, but also I think the normal ways of explaining that away are lame and and completely unconvincing. And I just, I want this ontological shock because I think it's very useful, but I also think it's what these events are about. I think they're designed to shock us out of our worldviews. And, and um, so I don't, I guess I don't want to help you there. Mm. <laughs> um, I want you on the wall, as it were. What was the other one? So you're afraid of telepathic praying and mantises. implants. Oh, implants. Like, mat okay. Materializations, I've grown around, and I'm like, okay, I could handle it if something materialized. If there was an airport, I'd be like, freaked out, but I'd be fine with it. But it's when there's a materialization in someone's body. Yeah. That's... I mean, uh, Whitley talking about the implant in his ear that moves yeah. around when they try and study it. Uh, that's just well. Let, let me talk about that. So, so I'm actually I'm writing a book right now. You know, I'm mm. always writing a book, and it's called The Physics of Mystics, mm. and it goes after this dual thing that something can be utterly physical and utterly spiritual at the same time. They're not. They're actually not 
We separate them in our mm-hmm. in our ordinary understanding because I think we split reality into a mental and a material box just because that's the nature of being a human being. But I don't think reality is actually so split. And one of the things that you find out eventually when you study the UFO phenomenon enough is that there's a physical aspect to it that can be studied scientifically and that there's a spiritual or paranormal aspect of it that we have no idea what to do with, but it's obviously there. And you can't separate these two. You can't say, oh, it's just a physical craft, but neither can you say, oh, it it's just a, a spiritual or a telepathic or a, or a paranormal event. No, both of these things are true. The it, it just burned the grass or it burned the person and the person now is telepathic or precognitive or, or, or doing strange things. So I, I think both of those statements are true again, very much like this earlier discussion we were having around the moral and, and the mystical. And I think we, how to think impossibly is essentially sitting with that doubleness and not rationalizing it away. Not saying, oh, it's just the physical or it's it's or it's just hallucinatory or 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 mental in some way. No, it's both. It's both. Um, and just letting that sit. So the implant, I mean, why? What how is an apport and an implant different? I mean one's one in, in your body. Well, okay, so yeah. what? I mean <laughs> I, I mean okay, it's in your body. You know, shamans get crystals yeah. stuck in their bodies too. I mean we don't call those implants and get freaked out. We just say, oh, well, shamans have crystals implanted by a, a being that came from the sky. Okay, that's okay. But no, no, no. Nobody can be abducted today and get a, yeah. an implant in their ear. No way, no how. I mean, why? Why, why do we make that distinction? I, don't, I just, I'm baffled by that. Other than colonialism and mm. materialism. I mean, there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of things that, that we can invoke here. And I think we should invoke. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're all wrong. Um, and I, I think I think these things do happen today. Yeah. I think one of the, and this came up in the the chapter on, what's his name? Jeremy Verreri? Very, the Oh, Jeremy Vaney. Uh-huh. Vaney, thank you. Yeah. Uh, the lack of consent. Like, and this goes back to the ethics and, you know, the paranormal is not the moral, right? Uh, but I mean, you know, it's not like, Whitley said, hey, it's cool. Just go ahead and stick that thing in my ear, that tracking device. I'm fine with that. Um, you know, the the total lack of consent is is a little freaky, but um, you know, body morphs are fine. Still, I'm I'm gonna be spooked by telepathic praying mantises. Well, just... Again, I mean, they're not called abductions for yeah, for nothing. I mean, there is no agency, Matt. Mm-hmm. I hate to tell you this, but there's no agency. I mean, people are literally abducted and, you know, um, my African-American colleagues will say, well, that's because these are memories of, 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 of a time when strange ships really did appear and really did abduct people. And it's called the Atlantic slave trade. Okay, that's a reading of what's going on. But to say that people have agency in these abductions, I think is just fundamentally mistaken. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. So let's let's be honest about it. Yeah. yeah, sometimes they'll try and make them happen, like Bill Hicks and Kevin Booth on the harmonic convergence, right? right? Yeah. Right. Uh, like, 
abduct me, right? Uh, the uh, well, and there, there, that's a mixed case, right? I yeah. mean, there you want to be, you want you want the contact or you want the encounter, but in most of these cases in the abduction literature, the person definitely does not want the encounter. Yeah. And you know, Whitley's implant—they held him down and forced him, and you know, his claim is that those were humans who did that, and mm. so that changes how we think of this as well. Um, what's going on there, you know? Yeah. So wait, uh, I had a closing question, but you spoke of a new book. Is this your own? Is it a monograph or are you co-writing it with someone on the physics? No, I, and just, I just start, I've, I'm working on it. I mean, it's the first volume in my trilogy, by the way. Oh, the, got it. The okay. Story trilogy. Yeah. The first volumes on physics and the second volumes on evolutionary biology and the second, the third volumes on cosmology or, or, or eschatology. Mm. All right. So those will be done, what, in five months? <laughs> uh, you just bang no, them out, no, no, no. Uh, channel them through. Um, yeah. So one of the, what I, where I wanted to land with this, this, uh, have you watched the show Hellier, per chance? No, I, you know, people ask me about that. No, the answer is no. Don't worry. Uh, so I, there's a lot of really mediocre or worse paranormal TV. I will say that this is pretty good. I, I actually think it's quite good. It's well done. Uh, and it's just saturated with all the cool stuff like goblins and hollow earth and Thelema and abductions. I mean, it's Mothman is a very big part of it. It's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. But the reason why I brought it up is they, one of the things they do on the show a lot is uh, show off what books they read. Like they'll just have like the red book sitting on their desk and the, <laughs> the camera will be pointed straight at it. It's pretty great. But I saw on their bookshelf, Mutants and Mystics, which has a very uh, sort of striking and um, a distinctive spine. Right. And I sort of clicked for me that in the same way, that you know you've written quite a bit on the paranormal not only writing us but it being something we can write yeah and now you're one of those authors yeah. right like like mac keel valet people who are interested in the paranormal are reading Crypal, and this is going to have feedback loops so how do you sit with with that right do you feel does it impact how you write in any way in any sort of responsibility or are you just like I'm doing my scholarly thing and putting it out there. No, 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 no. So again, this goes back to that night, Matt, to mm -hmm. take us back to the beginning. I mean, this is why I really do think that what happened in that night is that all of my future books flowed into me in in a kind of um, unconscious way. I, I had no context for them. I, I couldn't have told you that, you know, after mm -hmm. the event. But certainly as I write these books, um, I personally think they already exist in the future and that I'm just simply working. I'm in a time loop. I'm working towards them. And when I wrote Mutants and Mystics, you know, that whole book really is about the paranormal experiences of authors and artists. And it makes a lot of arguments. So one of the arguments is that, look, in contemporary Western culture, we can't talk about the paranormal in the sciences or in the White House or in our churches, but we can do it on Netflix mm -hmm. and we can do it in the movies. And so that's where it gravitates. And the beauty of these screenwriters who are doing this and these filmmakers is they don't have to prove anything. They just 
turn their experiences and other people's experiences into story. And I, I personally think that's a very positive and very admirable thing to do. Um, and, you know, Matt, the other thing, I, I'm getting old. And so when I like go to the dentist, I'm like, why are you a kid? Like, <laughs> why, why, how come people, how come doctors and dentists and everybody's getting younger? They're like becoming kids. And so like when I talk to journalists now too, you know, I used to somehow... Somehow when I, maybe when I was your age or when I was younger, I thought that somebody somewhere in the world knew something mm. and it was just my job to read a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. And I'd eventually find the person who know, who knows, okay, I don't, that's not true by the way, just like that on go. And now, so when I talk to a journalist or, or a screenwriter or a musician, or there's a lot of different people we could talk about, I'm like, oh, you, you were my student, you know? And mm. and of course they weren't my student. I I didn't have this person in class, but I sort of did have that person in class. Is what I'm trying to say is that by virtue of being in your early 60s, you work with a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, and every screenwriter, every journalist, every musician, they they all were once college students or or not, and. So I just, I, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of humility or a humanity in this that I find really admirable. And I'll tell you, Matt, it's particularly when I watch X-Men movies, I look at their bookshelves. I'm like, where's, where's, <laughs> where, where is it? Where, come on, come on, show me, show me. So I, I get a lot of, I got to watch that scene. You said there's a scene where they, the, the book is on the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. I because I was I was thinking about actually reaching out to them to come on the show. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I, I haven't really dug into like goblins aspect of paranormal before. Like this is this is a whole new terrain for me. And there's a praying mantis in the show, by the way. Telepathic praying mantis freaks me out. <laughs> but then, you know, they showed their bookshelves and I'm like, oh, that's mutants. Like it was, it's so distinct because it's got, I mean, nobody can see this, but it has the big green alien head on the spine and it's the hardcover. Yeah. So like they, they didn't wait, like they bought it when it came out and, and went out. And, Good. Good for them. Good yeah. for them. And so I talked to a lot of screenwriters. I mean, they, they read this stuff and mm -hmm. then they turn it into whatever they turn it into. Um, so I, how do I feel about that? I feel very good about that. I, I think that's great. Um, I think when your work is turned into art and, and into public art that that lasts and then is circulated through millions of people, I think that's wonderful. Um, I don't feel possessive about it. I don't feel academic about it. I, I feel artistic about it. I think it's wonderful. But art is not just art. This isn't art for art's sake. This is art to like transform people and to trigger people and you know, one of one of the things I'm arguing in this new book is that essentially what's happening in a paranormal event is a sci-fi movie is going off in your head, but it's also enacting itself in the physical environment. And all these special effects we call miracles are, are literally physical events that are happening. So we are somehow special effect machines that that have incredible power. And I think what happens in the movies is we're we're mimicking that or we're approaching that that skill set that we that we seem to have innately in us. 
Um, and I don't claim to understand that. Um, <laughs> I'm using that as a metaphor, obviously, but I think I just think it's true. I, th I think it's very true. Hmm. Well, that this seems like a, a good place to to come to a come to a stop simply because we sort of came full circle back to Calcutta in that night. And uh, yeah, well, this has been fun. Uh, if people want to listen to two people talk about you know telepathic insects and uh <laughs> ethics and all sorts of stuff they will like this episode so jeff uh, jeffrey kripal pardon me thank you so much for coming on um yeah yeah uh it, it's been an honor thanks thanks for any anytime this was this was a, a lot of fun all right take care <laughs>